Hey, thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. Here at Reveal, our mission is simple. Find God, find others, and find yourself. For more information, visit us online at revealvineyard.com. Uh, for the past year or so, we've been on a series uh, that we've been weaving in and out of called Jesus, the Greatest Show on Earth. And we've been looking and exploring the life of Jesus through John's gospel. And we would study a couple chapters and then we would break and go on to another, uh, another topic. And we're coming back to uh, our greatest show on earth series, looking at Jesus through uh, John's gospel. Regardless of what you believe about Jesus, it would not be a stretch or a leap to say that he was the most influential person throughout all of history. I mean, there have been some highly influential people who have walked the planet, some of our founding fathers, for example, uh, others like Isaac Newton and uh, Albert Einstein and Susan B. Anthony and Mother Teresa, all who have played a prominent, important role, an influential role in our culture, in society as a whole. But we can make a strong case that there has been no greater global impact throughout history as Jesus has had. His influence on culture is unmatched. Entire civilizations have been changed by his teaching. Governments have been built upon his wisdom. School, schools and hospitals and humanitarian aid have been done, uh, uh, set up and established in his name. Regardless of what you believe about him, it would not be a leap to say that he's the most influential person in history. There has been no one who has been more loved and no one who has been more hated. And even today, some 2,000 years after his time on earth, is still the most polarizing figure in culture. If we rewind some 2,000 years, a fisherman named John became a disciple of Jesus. And through his years of spending with Jesus, three of them, out of his firsthand experiences, he wrote his gospel. It's known as the gospel according to John. And I've told you before that that term gospel simply means good news. So when you see the gospel of John, it just means the good news of John. And what is the good news that John was speaking of? It was that God is redeeming mankind. It's that God so loved the world that he gave his son, that God has put on flesh and come to walk among us. That is the good news of John or the good news of Matthew or Mark or Luke. And so John became a follower of Jesus and out of his firsthand experiences, he wrote his gospel. John said this in John 21, 25. He said, now there are also many other things that Jesus did and were every one of them written or to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, John is engaging in hyperbole here to prove a point that there has never been anyone like Jesus. In other words, he's saying, look, I've, I've witnessed some incredible stuff, and I haven't written down all that I've experienced, but I have written down some of it. And then John says, and here's why I've written down what I did. He says in John 20, 31, he says, but these things are written. In other words, I wrote these things down that I experienced, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's telling us, look, I've seen a lot of incredible things. I've seen them with my own eyes. I heard them with my own ears. I've walked with him for three years, and I have come to believe that he is not just a prophet, not just a great teacher, but he is God in the flesh, and in him is life. And John says, I write these things so that those who come after me, that's us, may read my words and find the life that I have discovered. 
If you ever wanted to move from just simply existing to experiencing life as your creator has designed you to experience it, it is found in the person of Jesus. If you're new with us, we have 10 hills that uh, we die on. And uh, you can see the first one, if you have good eyes, that the, the first hill that we die on is that my life is about Jesus and I will uh, represent him today. Meaning that there are a lot of the things that a church can be about, but if we miss the idea and miss the fact that we are first and foremost primarily about Jesus and we failed as a church, meaning the best thing that we can offer is Jesus. The best message I can give you is Jesus. The best person that we can reflect in our society is Jesus. And so we're studying the life and the character and the teachings of Jesus from the book of John. We're not looking at the touched up version of Jesus or the the retouched photograph of Jesus. We're letting the Bible speak for itself regarding who Jesus is. Some of the other hills we die on is that I'm here as a seeker of truth that is greater than my own. I hope that's why you're here today to find a truth that is greater than your own. I hope that you come and choose to remove the mask and false, false friends to demonstrate authenticity. I hope that today that you will embrace the Bible's message and its promise for life transformation. Number five, that you are a part of something bigger than yourself and will strive to inspire my community today. I hope when you came that you looked for a way to inspire your community, other people here at our church, that I am here to be a participant in the kingdom of God. Number seven, that by God's design, I have gifts, talents, and and abilities to use today. Number eight, he'll we die on that I enter today seeking to experience the goodness, love, and mercy of God. Number nine, that I do not come to judge my church because mercy triumphs over judgment. Number ten, that we are spiritual contributors and not spiritual consumers. So we're in the 13th chapter of John's gospel, John's good news. And we're looking at what is known as the upper room discourse. Now, here's what I want you to know. From 13 on, everything changes in the ministry of Jesus. In other words, the mood changes in chapter 13. Jesus is nearing his final hours. Matter of fact, he probably only had about 24 hours left at this point from where we're reading until his arrest, betrayal, and his crucifixion. So everything from chapter 13 on is a different kind of vibe, a different feel. In other words, the, heal, the healings and the miracles are in the past the, the feeding of the 5,000, that's over. The, there's no more mountaintop sermons and there's no more calming the storms and no more amazing the crowds with wisdom and insightful teachings and all of the crowds have gone home and, and, and it, Jesus is 24 hours away from his suffering and he has gathered with him 12 of his closest friends, 12 of his disciples. He is hours away from nails piercing skin, from thorns biting flesh. John 13, he gives us a a glimpse into the final moments of Jesus with the 12 men who would be given the task to change the world. Jesus, it's his final instructions. It's the chalk talk before the big game. Join me as we pray for God to speak to us. Lord, I love your word and what it represents and what it teaches us and the wisdom that it shines upon us and the path that it illumines before us. And today, I trust that your word will continue doing what it's always done, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword and that it would cut and pierce that which needs to be taken away and that what would remain are those things which are pleasing to you. 
And Holy Spirit, move among us and speak to us and transform us and change us. Let our pride be pushed out of the way and let us embrace the message that you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 13, 1. We'll put it on the screen. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus, now catch this phrase, knew that his hour had come. Now the feast of the Passover is simply a a meal that commemorates Israel's release from Egypt. There was some agricultural significance to it, but that is downplayed. It's far more minimal than the the, uh, celebration of Israel's release from Egypt. And if you read the Gospels, you will see where Jesus said repeatedly that my hour has not yet come. Or my time is not yet at hand. He said that often. There were times when he would heal someone and he would say, I know you're excited about this healing, but go and tell no one. And the reason he did that is there were powers that be that were seeking to kill him. And Jesus knew that if if this thing gets stirred too quickly, then my time is going to approach quicker than it should. And I have things to do, right? He had a ministry of about three years on earth from the moment of his baptism on. And so he would tell people, my time has not yet come. Can I just keep this quiet? Well, now John 13 says, Jesus knew, now is my time. In other words, nothing caught Jesus unaware. The arrest, the betrayal, the crucifixion, the, the suffering, it was, for, it was the purpose of why he came. And so he, he was fully engaged, understanding of what was taking place. And so it says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, Luke tells us the same account of this upper room discourse, and Luke says it like this. We're going to jump back and forth from John to Luke. Luke says it like this. He takes a slightly different account of of this same event. He says, and when the hour had come, same idea that Jesus knew his hour had come, that he reclined, meaning Jesus, at the table, and the apostles were with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, Jesus is fully aware of what's about to go down. He's hours away from his suffering. And his last meal, he wants to spend it with those who are closest to him. And so he gathers up the 12 and he says, I've earnestly desired to spend this time to eat this meal with you because my time is really short. And and, and what, what do you do when you're down to your last 24 hours of life? He assembled those closest to him to give a final word, a final teaching, as, as we would, to love those who he's closest with. And he gathers them around. But have you ever looked forward to something as Jesus did here, said, I've earnestly desired to to have this meal? Have you ever looked forward to something so much that when it actually happened, it fell far short of your expectations? We had uh, this crazy idea once to uh, go out and spend, do a short vacation in our RV over Thanksgiving. And so we thought, well, what we're going to do is we're going to build this great memory uh, as a family. And in my mind, uh, it was going to be this Rockwell family moment. We got an image there. It's the famous Rockwell uh, painting. And I thought, this is going to be our Thanksgiving uh, uh, feast to remember, that long after we're gone, our children will have this memory of us having Thanksgiving uh, in the RV, out in God's splendor, and it would be memories for our children long after we leave. And so we prepared the feast and surrounded by the splendor of God's majesty. And it was as if God created this moment 
seriously, that he created this moment just for my family. There was a cool breeze that was blowing in that whispered God's love over my children. We sat under clouds of marshmallows and, 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 and the smell of turkey and green bean casserole and sweet potatoes. Just the smell drew my children in from around the camp area and we all kind of gathered around this table that was out in the God's splendor and and, and we all kind of gathered hands, and I blessed the food, and I blessed the family. And for a moment, it was everything that I thought it was going to be. It was perfect. Until the bee came. And the bee came, not a lot, just, just one, but judging by my wife's reaction, you would have thought that it was the original hive that made its way up from South America in the 80s that was going to kill us. Any of you old enough to remember that, that fear of, of the, the killer bees are coming? You would have thought that it was this killer bee hive that was coming to devour our family. And I tried to calm the situation, but my children already took their cue from their mother, and the Kaisers, apparently judging by my family's response, was now one sting away from death. And, and, and uh, one child, uh, uh, they, well my wife got up, she's swatting at the bee and she knocked over her chair and an, another child had screamed as it landed on her arm, but true, it was a fly, but it didn't matter at that point whatever was moving was, was like fear game, was fair game of fear and, and one child knocked over their we do plastic champagne glasses and with Martinelli's and one knocked over their uh, glass of champagne uh, Martinelli's and another one knocked over the entire bottle of Martinelli's and it's falling on, dripping on the table outdoors and this little plastic table we were on started to shake violently because the kids are, are freaking out and, and, and they're sure that, that they're about to die and, and now my wife can't stop mumbling under her breath, I'm allergic, I'm allergic, I'm allergic and one by one I'm sitting there trying to get control of the conversation of the situation, one by one the Kaisers leave and run inside of the RV to the safety and the sanctuary of the RV and I'm left sitting there alone, true story. Me and food that's on the floor, a bottle of Martinelli's that is tipped over, and a single bee. And I thought, this is nothing what I thought it was going to be like. We laugh about it today, but at the time, I was furious because I had this in mind and nothing like that ever occurred. And I wonder if Jesus experienced a moment like this where he, he eagerly, earnestly desired to have the last 20, his last meal with those closest to him. And he maybe in his mind, he thought, well, you know, we, we would reminisce about the good old days and I would impart final words and, and, and maybe tears would be shed and speeches would be made. And instead, in true disciple fashion, they totally ruin the whole thing. Luke says this, Luke 22. He says, and a dispute arose, also arose among them, listen, as to which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. So here's Jesus, 24 hours left before his suffering. He gathers his favorite people around, and what happens is they're arguing with one another, debating with one another as to who would be the greatest among them. Jesus is contemplating his own death. He's laboring to prepare himself for it. And his disciples are, are positioning and posturing themselves to be number one. You would think that after three years of being with Jesus that they would have finally had their minds set on bigger things like what happens when Jesus leaves and what happens to us and how will we continue the message. Instead, they were establishing a pecking order. Who will be upper management? Who will be the one who will get the corner office? And it shows how deeply seated is our love for power and how ambition will find its way even into the most secret and sacred spaces. We don't have to look far into seeing what sparked this conflict. The streets of Jerusalem were dirty and uh, 
not only with uh, dirt, obviously there was no pavement, but with animal waste that went up and down the, the, the streets and uh, mud and possibly even human waste that you know, would, would be around. And people didn't wear socks back then or closed-toned shoes. They wore open-toed sandals. So you would walk up and down the streets and your feet would become filthy and filthy and grimy and grungy and sweaty and smelly. And before a meal of this nature, the custom was, was to wash the feet of the, of the individual before the meal. Because nothing ruins a good meal like stink foot, right? And that's kind of what they were trying to avoid. And in Jesus' day, foot washing was mandatory. It would be offensive if you came into a meal into someone's home and did not either wash your feet or have someone wash your feet. You would either wash your own when the host would give you a basin of water and and something to dry them with, or if they had the means, they would have a, a hired servant that would kneel down and wash your feet for you. And so the disciples were keenly aware that in order, before this meal, before this, this feast of Passover begins, someone needs to wash their feet. And so they waited to see who blinked. And their waiting turned to arguing. And I could kind of see them saying something like, Andrew, why don't you get down on your knees and why don't you wash our feet? And Andrew would be like, me? I, I was the first disciple ever called. I'm not going to wash their feet, wash your feet. Thomas, you should wash our feet. And Thomas would be like, what? I'm not, I'm not touching Peter's feet. Have you seen Peter's feet? He has bunions on bunions and hammer toes and, and his heels are cracking and bleeding. And Thomas would be like, I'm not, hey, James and John, you guys are brothers. You guys should double team this and you should wash our feet. And they're like, what? Do you know what Jesus called us? Jesus called us sons of thunder. Does that sound like two people that should be washing someone's feet? And they had this argument going on as to who was going to belittle themselves, humble themselves enough to wash everyone's feet. And I I wonder if this was his Thanksgiving moment. Because at play was this. Who was the low man on the totem pole? And they are jockeying for position. I mean, I I can see them trying to make a case for themselves as to who was the greatest. And I can see, you know, one of them saying, did you see the way I healed that blind person? And you want me to wash your feet? I walk up to them and I, I, I lick my fingers and I put two fingers on their eyes and I said, let there be sight. See what I did there? I did a play on let there be light. And I said, let there be sight. And poof, their eyes were open and I could see someone else saying, that's nothing. I, did you see the way that I healed the deaf person? I walked up to them and I, I didn't even touch them. I just said, ears be ye open. Matter of fact, I didn't even say it. I just mouthed it because they were deaf and they didn't know. So I, and then suddenly, pop, their ears are open. And I can see Peter like, that's nothing. That person that was lame, I, I, I threw them their healing. I didn't speak to them. I didn't touch them. I didn't even mouth the words. I was just like behind the back, like, receive it. And I'll pop their legs. And, and they're walking. I can see them making a case like, I will never humble myself to wash your feet because I am the greatest among you. And they're positioning in light of Jesus leaving as to who was going to be the CEO in charge. And so there they sat angry with one another, posturing and positioning to be the greatest. And whenever there is trouble over who is the greatest, hear me, the greater worry is who is the least. Whenever there is trouble over who is the greatest, the greater worry is who is the least. And when one worries about who's on top, the real fear is who is on bottom. 
And so looking forward to this final moment with his disciples, and they are arguing over who is the greatest and who should wash whose feet. And amazingly, in true Jesus fashion, the greatest thing Jesus communicated was not through words, but was through his actions. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He observed their positioning. And so picking his moment, he stands. What do you do when you are the most powerful person in the room? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. Maybe you're a manager or maybe it's in your family or whatever that may look like. What do you do when you are the most powerful person in the room? I want you to notice what Jesus did. Back to John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and they had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper. Now catch that little phrase, meaning supper has already started. So there was no washing of feet yet rose from supper, you can almost see this in slow motion, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What do you do when you realize you are the most important person in the room? Jesus gives us an example. You serve Don't miss the fact that according to to, uh, verse 4, the meal already was underway, and then Jesus begins to wash their feet. And and, and this would strike us as odd because normally it would happen in advance. And I wonder if by delaying the foot washing, Jesus escalated the level of suspense. Like, you know, when you're expecting, waiting for something to happen, it would be like when you go out to a meal with friends and the check comes and everyone's waiting. Who's going to grab the check? You know, and and you're thinking, well, it's actually their turn. I got the last time. And they're thinking, no, it's your turn. I got the last time. And and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and the suspense is building. And every time someone scratches, you're hoping they're actually reaching for it. And so then you start the slow motion reach, hoping that they're going to say, no, 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 I got this. And the closer you get, you're thinking, I'm going to pay for that. I'm going to have to pay for that. I'm going to have to pay. And I wonder if this is Jesus was waiting to see who, quote, grabbed the check. And Jesus is like, I'm going to let this play out to see who is going to be the one that will humble themselves to grab the check or who will be the one to say, you know what, I got this, I will wash your feet. And nobody blinked, no one stepped up. And so already into supper, Jesus stands and one by one begins to wash their feet. And what I find amazing is he washes all of their feet, even the one who is about to betray him. Because John 13, 2 says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. What do you do when you're the most powerful man in the room? You serve even those who will ultimately betray you. It's amazing that Jesus had that type of humility. Ever have a moment that left you speechless? I mean, what what do you say if you're one of the disciples? You were just arguing about who is the greatest, and now Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, now takes off his his outer garment, his, his robe of authority as a rabbi, and he begins to wash the dirt and the grime and the junk off of your feet. At his pinnacle of at the pinnacle of his power, sheds his robe and humbles himself. And the message that he gave was clear. When you're the most powerful person in the room, you must refuse to leverage that power for only your own benefit. And that is a strong statement for us. Without saying a word, he brings an abrupt end to the debate and his actions speak louder than words. He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then humble yourselves and do what others will not. 
In other words, he was saying, I want my followers to be willing to do what pride-filled, self-absorbed, inward-focused people are unwilling to do. Because the disciples, hear me, the disciples were willing to fight for a throne, but not one of them was willing to fight for a towel. And how often can we get into that mode of thinking where I will fight for what is mine, I will fight for, for, for whatever I think belongs to me, for my position, for my prestige, and we're willing to fight for a throne, but how often are we willing to fight for a towel? And Jesus says, you got it backwards. Matthew 20 tells us a mother's request. It says the mother of Zebedee's sons, is James and John, they're disciples of Jesus, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked him a favor. So picture this Jewish mother coming and saying, Jesus, I have a favor for you for my boys. They've been following you. And Jesus says, what is it that you want? He asked. And she said, grant that one of them, one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink of the cup I'm, about, I'm going to drink? He's speaking of his death. And the boys are like, we can, they answered. Like, absolutely. And so here's a mother not coming on behalf of her children saying, Jesus, make my sons into something great. Notice verse 24. When the other ten disciples heard this, they were indignant with the two other brothers. And I think the reason they were upset was first that they asked first and second that they brought their mom in. Because, you know, a mom has some pull here. And how Jesus answers is brilliant. He said, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He was saying, Mother, do you want your children to be something great? And she's like, yes, of course I do. And he says, then teach them to pick up a broom and serve someone. Mother, do you want your children to have lasting legacy and to have lasting impact? And she's like, well, Jesus, of course I do. And he's saying, then teach them to do what others will not. Teach them to deny themselves for the sake of the least of these. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. If anyone ever had the right to be served, it would be Jesus the Messiah, God in the flesh. And yet he says of himself, I did not come that I would be served by you. I ultimately came that I would be the one serving you. It is creator serving creation. He says this, you have a choice to make. And it is the most important choice you may ever make. Are you going to choose what comes natural and to focus on yourself? Or will you choose what others will not? The towel. Notice how he ends this passage in John 13. He says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have just done, what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. He's, in other words, saying, listen, you're calling me Messiah and Lord, and you are correct. I am all of those things. But then he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash. How would you finish that statement? You, you, how would you predict that that statement ends because if you had to fill in the blank our first thought would be because I washed your feet now you must wash my feet it only makes sense it only seems to 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 fit the idea I've scratched your back now you scratch my back and yet Jesus defies expectations he says if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's go to that next slide you also ought to wash 
one another's feet. Jesus says, look, it's not even about anybody washing my feet. You need to wash one another's feet. And I have given you this example for you to follow. Hey, modern day foot washing church. Last week, we went out and did some modern day foot washing. Put that first picture up there. Went and we painted a home. This is Mary's home. She's probably a 70-year-old lady. Her husband and her built that house, and uh, the husband passed away. Home has not been painted. It was in pretty rough shape. We had to do a lot of scraping, uh, a, a, a lot of work on it to, uh, to get it ready to receive the paint, and had about 30 people who attacked that home, cranked it out in about uh, two and a half hours. Uh, you can see kind of the underside of, uh, of some of it, of the scraping. And you know what? It was, some, it was some difficult work, and it was sweaty at times, and we had two men in our church, I won't even tell you their names because they won't want me to, who went there the week before and replaced the fascia board that was already cracked and then went back there the following Wednesday and finished the small details that we didn't have time to, feed, uh, have time to finish. That is a modern-day foot washing of someone whose house was dirty and ugly and then went in and a bunch of us came in and said, we'll take care of it for you. Go to the next slide. The second home, or the next one there, please. Oh, wait, uh, go back. So so that's me. For those of you that wonder if I actually help in these events, that is me painting, and because some of you were surprised, but go to the next image and I want you to see how I paint. Most of the time, I'm not even looking at what I'm painting. I'm just just, just slapping paint up there. I go to the next image there. The second home that we did on the same day, uh, a single mother uh, who uh, had needed some uh, paint work done on her home. We're part of CUP, the Community Uplift Program, and uh, people turn in work requests to El Mirage, and then they contact us, and this is how we get the jobs uh, for us to do. Go to the next slide. Again, probably 25, 30 people that attacked this job and cranked it out in two and a half hours. Those same two men went back and spray-painted the eaves, the underside of that, because it's too difficult to roll, took their own time and, and went in, dedicated themselves, and cranked out the rest of that. Go to the, the next slide. And then we had a group that went to the clothing shop in uh, El Mirage, and, and they sorted all types, bags of clothing that they were behind on, and then uh, the children uh, separated and sorted uh, the hygiene packets. Go to the next, next image there. Separated and sorted hygiene packets and, and with toilet paper and toothpaste and deodorants and things that they would give to, to people who are uh, in need. Do we have another image there? Of, of people who are in need. And this is our church doing a modern day foot washing. I'm proud of us for doing these things. Now, I've told you before, there's a reason why we do this because it is important to me that we understand that we're not, this cannot just be us. It's not what I want us to be as a church. And so we do this, and I told our staff, I don't care if it ever gets to the point where it's me and 10 other people. This is what we will do because it's the right thing to sow into. It's just, it's who we need to be. And you know what? There are financial costs for us. All that paint, we paid for that. The supplies, we paid for that. And I'm not complaining. That's what we need to be as a church. Our, our offering last week, $5,000 less than it normally is. We take that into account. I don't want us to be a church that's, that's driven by the offering bucket. But here's my sad part. As proud of I, as I am for our church, we had other jobs that we had to turn down the day of because we didn't have enough volunteers. And that, to me, sucks. It just does. Because I want us to be a church of modern-day foot washers that will go into the community and do what other people won't. And I'm getting ready in a couple weeks to give you a list of everything that we've done as a small church, and it will amaze you 
of a bunch of small, small church of people that got together and said, let's do something significant in, 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 our, in our community. And while we were painting that greenhouse, I was kind of having flashbacks of things that we've done. And I thought, you know what? We've, we've, we've served incredibly well in our community, but we're not finished yet. And so we cannot lose momentum in these things. And the next time that we have one in the fall, it's a modern day foot washing. And the call that Jesus would put out is what will you do when you discover you're the most powerful person in the room? And you know what? You are the most powerful person in the room. Because we have things that others don't. And we have the ability that others don't. And so will we leverage what we have as individuals and as a church to give to those who do not have? And it starts with the decision, will I wash feet? Let me have our band come up to close. Here's something to ask yourself. How can I leverage my power and ability and talent and money for the sake and benefit of the least of these in the room? Other modern-day foot washings are, 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 are those who uh, make meals on our meal team for those who are sick and those who have surgery, or if you're serving in children's ministry, we have people in the church on their own who go out and they feed the homeless on their own, or they volunteer in hospitals, or they serve in young life. This, this is a modern-day foot washing, and it is my dream, my hope, that all of us as a church will one day break through that 80%, that 80-20 gap that says 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. I'd like us one day to flip that, where it's all of us are working together. All of us are doing their part to be foot washers in the body of Christ. Here's what I leave you with. If you don't see it yet, or if you don't know, I'm preparing you for something. The Join the Revolution series, there was a purpose behind it. The Crave series of desiring destiny and meaning, there's a purpose behind it. I am preparing you for the jump to light speed as a church. We are pursuing this building at Fresh and Easy. Met with the architects on Friday. It will be the biggest risk we ever take as a church. And we're taking the step. Unless something falls apart, we met with the architect. We're uh, getting our, our, our TI dollars and then we'll finalize the, uh, the, the, the terms and the TI dollars that the landlord is ready to put in. I am trying to prepare us for the biggest step we will ever take as a church. And the only way it works is if we have a church of foot washers. And if we don't, I I don't know what our future will look like. That's just being blunt with you. I don't know. It's going to be a risk for us. But I am convinced that there's more that God wants to do through this body of believers. And so none of this is by accident. None of this is by chance. I am preparing us to take the biggest step that we've ever taken as a church. And yes, that means we're going to need to raise some money in a very short period of time as well. So I just thought I'd throw that out. Yes, surprise, yay! And we're thrilled about that. And so this is our opportunity. If we go into this fresh and easy space and we're not a church of foot washers, then we've got a nice building and we've accomplished absolutely nothing. If we go into this space and we're a bunch of foot washers in the middle of a community that we have so heavily invested in, man, we can change our community. But that's on you. I know what my answer is going to be. I gave my answer some, you know, goodness, 25 years ago when I bowed my knee at the cross of Christ and said, whatever it is you ask, I'm in. I hope your answer will be, I'll be a foot washer, and that we take this thing together. So we We'll end this in worship.
if you're here and Reveal is your church and you're not a foot washer, if you're not serving somewhere and you're not sowing into people's lives, listen, I don't know how more clearly to ask that now's the time for you to step up. Don't dismiss it. Don't blow it off. Don't say someone else can do it. Don't, don't, don't be sitting around like the disciples did and said, well, let somebody else will wash my feet. No, no, Jesus made it very clear. Let, let's stop all that. I'm inviting you to participate in what I believe God is doing in a small church in Surprise, Arizona. And I hope you'll step into it with us and see what God might have in our future. Lord, big things on the horizon. But you know I don't want us to step into this and it just be a building shift. I want it to be a cultural shift. I want us to see people coming to Christ and those who are captured by addictions to be set free and marriages restored and families put intact. And so I pray that you would be building this in us and establish it in us that we would be foot washers starting today. I pray in the name of Jesus.